Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to the Merix podcast. I am Claudia Wessling, Director of Communications and Publications at Merix. And today we are going to talk about the situation in Afghanistan and China's stake uh, in the developments in the region. Now the question is being asked, is China the big winner after the West's failure in Afghanistan? To discuss this question and the complexities of China's power projection in the region, um, I am joined today by Raffaello Pantucci. He's a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, a defense and security think tank based in the United Kingdom. Raffaello's research focuses on terrorism and counterterrorism, as well as China's relations with its Western neighbors. He currently spends his time between London and Singapore and is the author of several publications on terrorism and currently works on a project looking at Chinese interests in Central Asia. Raffaello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, Claudia. You're very welcome. Um, Raffaello, when the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was founded more than 20 years ago, China was one of the driving forces behind efforts to mitigate security issues emanating from Afghanistan. Looking at this historical background, it seems surprising that China now strikes a quite conciliatory tone vis-a-vis -vis the new Taliban rulers, offering even the possibility of diplomatic recognition. Um, what are China's economic and geopolitical interests in Afghanistan? And how does Beijing want to pursue those interests? Could you explain that to our listeners? So I think, you know, China is fundamentally a very pragmatic actor uh, on the international stage. And from Beijing's perspective, Afghanistan is a country that they share a border with. So no matter who's in charge there, China will have to have some sort of a relationship with them because they share a common border. And with Afghanistan in particular, there's the additional problem that they've seen historically how the country and its ungoverned spaces has become a place where they've seen Uyghur militants and dissidents gather in an attempt to plot and cause trouble within China. To track back to your sort of your, your, your framing question at the beginning, you know, I think what's fascinating about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is that actually you've got an organization there that you're entirely right. If you go back and look at the genesis of it, and you go back and look in 2001, where the meeting, when all the leaders gathered in Shanghai to sort of christen the organization, you can see that a number of them refer to Afghanistan as the sort of key problem that they would like this organization to focus on. And they're all very animated and concerned about terrorist problems emanating from that. And frankly, regional actors, mostly Central Asians, didn't really want to do that. They preferred to have a bilateral engagement. So China's always been very keen And how they've tried to implement this, you know, has been uh, quite multifaceted. And it's been basically a story of hedging, engaging with everybody, doing a little bit with everything, but without ever really committing to any one side on the ground or really committing in a wholehearted and substantial way on any other front, be it political, be it economic, be it security. Um, what exactly is it that China wants to achieve um, by um, approaching the new government in Afghanistan? Are they are they after um, raw materials that are in the soil in Afghanistan? Are there economic projects planned, or is the security aspect you just mentioned uh, the the major motivation to um, communicate with this new government? I think, you know, it's, it's a realization of the fact that this government, if this really is going to be a Taliban-led government, they're going to have to engage in them because it sits on their border. And, you know, they're coming at this with an open enough you know, eye and saying, well, you know, look, if, you're, if the Taliban are genuinely 
acting in the way that they're saying, you know, well, we'll give them a chance. We'll try to engage in them because they'll still be in power at the end of the day. And we have to sort of, we share a border with them. And then I think the security issues are what most animate them, you know, worrying about Uyghur dissidents and militants gathering in Afghanistan to cause trouble back home. And then I think a second concern is a more wider regional security picture. You know, part of China's long-term answer to stabilizing Xinjiang is investing in developing the region around Xinjiang. The idea being that, you know, if, if Xinjiang is sitting in a prosperous and stable neighborhood, then, you know, Xinjiang will also become prosperous and stable. And the danger, of course, is that Afghanistan becomes unstable and starts in exporting instability north and south into Central Asia and Pakistan. It will massively disrupt specific Chinese projects there. But more generally, this idea of Xinjiang being in a kind of stable and prosperous region. So the problems are really security first and foremost. I think there's been a huge amount of overplaying of China's economic interests and appetite in Afghanistan. The reality is that, you know, um, China's just had 20 years of Afghanistan being ruled by a relatively stable government, you know, a government that was at least engaging on the international stage, that had some transparency, that had technocrats in it, that had people who, you know, understood contracts and understood how to get financing and all these sorts of things. And in all of that time, you know, there were two large Chinese investment projects that were attempted by Chinese companies. And both of them, frankly, fell foul of local issues and difficulties. You know, in, in many ways, I, I struggle to see how in a less stable situation with a less potentially reliable government, um, this is suddenly going to appear a more you know, appealing prospect to Chinese investors. I can see how, you know, the potential opportunities that exist and the untapped resources would be attractive to Chinese companies. But I just think the practicality is getting that. Uh, at the moment are probably quite high. So I think I think we're still quite a way off from seeing that happening. And, you know, which then knocks on to the fact that I, I struggle to see that as the primary driver of Chinese engagement in Afghanistan. So um, you're saying it yourself, um, expectations to uh, China becoming an economic, huge economic partner of the new Afghanistan government are, are a bit overrated and it's a bit early to say um, You just mentioned Xinjiang and that security interests are just the, the overruling factor in, in China's engagement here. Um, how, how do you think um, this new development in Afghanistan will influence the situation in Xinjiang? Is there something uh, that one could say concretely? I mean, the Chinese concern emanates from a very specific possibility that, you know, groups and networks could build bases in Afghanistan to try to launch attacks back. And You know, it's very difficult to know, you know, how, how much of a risk this really is. I mean, we know that there are some uh, Uyghur militants that have operated in Afghanistan. We know that there are some there where there are reports that a UN a monitoring group will put out that says that certain numbers have left Syria to come back to Afghanistan. So there is clearly a group there. Whether this group is able to mobilize to launch an attack within China is not very clear, uh, to be honest. The Chinese have got a pretty good and strong um, you know, uh, capability that they can uh, project in terms of um, trying to, you know, protect their own environment, to protect their borders. And so I think that that's, it's, it's a bit overblown in some ways, that sort of direct concern. I think the bigger concern from a Chinese perspective is not the kind of direct threats coming back right now, even though that does hang very heavy over their sort of considerations. I think they're probably more worried about these guys either trying to do attacks in North and South, so Uyghur militants looking at targets in Central Asia or Pakistan, Or more generally, you know, the sense that you could see either, you know, as I said before, Afghanistan destabilizing its but also more generally this idea that, you know, the Taliban victory in Afghanistan will be taken by Sunni militant and dissident groups all over the world 
who will look at this and say, well, you know, victory is possible, you know, and this wind of victory and this sense of success might start to animate people in Xinjiang and elsewhere to actually think, well, actually, you know, you know, this, this is not a pointless struggle. We can do it. Look at what the Taliban achieved in Afghanistan. They overthrew, you know, or they threw out the world's superpower. You know, maybe this is possible elsewhere as well. So I think that, you know, that is in some ways how the concern does appeal to them, this sort of, you know, this global rhetoric, this idea of a destabilized region, and then potentially this idea of guys coming back. So I think these all sort of play into Chinese concern. Talking about the Taliban and, and communist functionaries, um, hmm. I am inclined to say that it, it looks very unlikely that these guys really can relate to each other and um, kind of create find common ground on topics they would need to discuss. Um, how do you see this? Is there any any kind of trust that already exists that both sides could rely on to, to build a relationship I mean, I think the Chinese are fairly clear eyed about what they're dealing with. Um, you know, I don't think they're naive. And I also don't think that they're going into their relationship with the Taliban, you know, without hedging. You know, if you go back and look, the sort of much vaunted and discussed meeting between, you know, Wang Yi and Mullah Barada in Tianjin was, you know, preceded the week before by President Xi calling President Ghani and, you know, loudly proclaiming his support for the Afghan government. And this is sort of a consistent issue that you can see, you know, the Chinese engage with both sides. And actually, what's interesting about the connection with the Taliban is that, you know, we all look at what well, people look at the sort of meeting in, in Tianjin and say, oh, my God, this is some dramatic new thing. I would argue it's a culmination of a long term engagement, which goes back pre 9-11. Pre 9-11, they were already trying to engage with the Taliban. They were doing it through the Pakistanis at the time. Um, and then through the sort of American uh, invasion period, you saw a gradual you know, increase of these contacts and gradually an opening up of China having these contacts to the world to the point where the Chinese were actually helping get the Pakistanis and the Taliban to the table with the Americans and um, the Afghan government to try to sort of talk peace in the mid 2010s. You know, so in a way, this engagement is just kind of the culmination of what is a sort of trajectory that's always been going in this direction anyway. So I think on the other side of the coin, the point about, you know, a group of mullahs from, you know, rural Helmand, you know, sitting down with, you know, Communist Party officials who recently to get the rulers from John Now High is an odd combination to consider. But I mean, the point I make is that the Chinese are pretty pragmatic actors on the international stage. And you can see that in a number of different places. The example I like to look at is Egypt, where if you remember pre-Arab Spring, when you had President Mubarak in charge, you know, the Chinese were engaging them. They were doing a number of projects with the Egyptians. And then when Mubarak was defenestrated, you saw uh, the uh, Morsi government come in, the Muslim Brotherhood government then. And there was a whole discussion about, oh, Chinese contracts are going to get shut. They're going to get booted out of the country. No, they didn't. The contracts rolled seamlessly over and the Chinese continued their engagement with the Muslim Brotherhood government. That lasted a, however short a period it did. And then they, they were out of office. And then President al-Sisi comes in. And we see again, the same projects just rolling seamlessly over. And, you know, I think the Chinese are pretty good at maintaining this, this ability to essentially just try to not, you know, pick sides in some of these situations, which leads them into these odd situations of having to build relationships with actors that they don't have any kind of compatibility with. But at the same time, this kind of valueless Or this value judgment less approach they offer to engagement with these entities means that they're kind of able to get away with it. And that and coupled with the fact that, you know, for whoever is in power in Afghanistan, right, be it the Taliban government or the old Afghan government that we had, they look at their borders and they see that China is their richest and most influential neighbor. So they will want to have an engagement with them of some sort. And so this is how we get to this situation. Um, where do you see this developing? Um... 
Will China manage to project its influence into Afghanistan and affect and really change the power balance in the region? Um, some newspapers over here um, had the headline, uh, China is the winner of the, Western's, of the West's failure in Afghanistan. Would you agree with this? And where do you see this uh, situation developing? Look, I, I, think, um, I think these narratives of China winning Afghanistan are a bit overblown. I think that I, I believe that there are probably people in China who believe that, frankly, and you can see it in some of the public rhetoric and so on. Um, but I think that they, you know, if, they, if that's what they think, they've bitten off more than they can chew because, you know, Afghanistan is a place that's created problems for many different countries before. And I do not see the situation that's emanating now ultimately turning out to be more stable, frankly, than what we had before. I mean, maybe this is the first step on a path, maybe. But I don't think we're on that path quite yet. And so I think we have to sort of wait and see what actually happens. And I think at the moment, all the indicators are towards, you know, some sort of potential instability going forwards. And that will cause uh, China problems. So I think it's narrative of victory in that sense is overplayed. I think what, what has changed and where I think one could say that China is definitely kind of winning, if one wants to put it in that way, in a kind of struggle against the West, is that with the US and NATO removal from Afghanistan, you now really have an entire area of the Eurasian heartland, which is basically in Chinese thrall in one way or another. Now, they all have complicated relationships with China. None of them are particularly bosom buddies, <laughs> but they're all kind of increasingly seeing China as the really influential actor in their backyard. And they're all increasingly trying to engage with China in lots of different ways. And in many ways, China is able to exert some influence over them. And this, I think, is the thing that's changed now, is that you've now got this area of the Eurasian heartland, which stretches, you know, in a way, Russia through Central Asia, um, you know, on the Middle East, all the way across Iran into the sort of, you know, Syria region. You've got this vast area where China is really seen as the kind of important and preeminent partner. Um, now, if you dig into the reality of these very relationships, they all have very strong economic relations with Europe. They have strong economic relations with the United States. There's lots of other linkages there and there. But the Chinese are increasingly becoming the most kind of influential and consequential actor in this region. And they're kind of freezing the West out increasingly. And I think that is the kind of transformation and change that you're going to see. And in a way, Afghanistan was kind of the outlier for this. This gave the West a real reason to stay engaged in this region. And with the removal of the sort of forces in Afghanistan, suddenly that reason is not there anymore. And I think you're going to see this entire region fall from our sort of attention uh, pretty quickly and frankly, slowly slip deeper into sort of Chinese soil. Now, maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, China is a very rich and powerful country and it does share a border with all these places. So there is a kind of natural logic to it. But, you know, it's just. It's interesting to me. I think that is the kind of longer term consequence in many ways that China is going to this helps strengthen China's position as the kind of dominant actor, the dominant big power. Let's put it that way on the kind of Eurasian heartland. Again, is this to China's benefit? I'm not always sure that it really is, you know, because there's a lot of problems in this region and China's got a very bad track record of trying to resolve other people's problems. So but they're going to be increasingly looked to as the one who's expected to try to help. And I, I don't know that Beijing knows how to do that. Um, anything the West or Western countries like the US or NATO allies could need to do to your mind to gain, uh, yeah, remain in the region or remain present uh, and stop uh, this development of being frozen out of the region? Region. I think that, you know, there's there's a lot that the West could still try to do. I mean, if we accept that, you know, large security deployments are probably out of the question, 
you know, there's a real appetite in the region. I, I talk, if I start with Central Asia in particular, you know, Central Asia, there's a huge appetite to want to engage with the West, you know, and the European Union, for example, has always engaged an awful lot with Central Asia, but it's happened in this incredibly disparate fashion. Now, if you look at numbers, in most Central Asian countries, the European Union is their biggest economic partner. But that's if you take it as a cumulative group. Right. In reality, of course, it ends up being a whole disparate set of individual relationships that, you know, Germany's present, for example, in all five countries, the United Kingdom is, but of course, they're not in the EU anymore. You know, you've got the French that are, I think, represented in all, in all of them as well. I think the thing is that you've never really had a sort of concerted effort by Europe to really push together and say, OK, well, actually, let's really work together on this region. In many ways, frankly, what we've seen over the past few years is a real sense of flightiness in the West in that they come, they engage, and yes, they're clearly important and they're big actors and they have lots of money, but the interest doesn't always seem to be there. It kind of comes and it kind of goes and it oscillates. And I think this is the real loss in a way is that, you know, you've got a part of the world that would love to engage with the West, but it can't uh, because it, the West doesn't sort of consistently engage with it. And frankly, they will always live next door to China and Russia, <laughs> you know, and so they will always have to engage with them, of course. But they would love to have more options from the West, and they often don't feel that those options are necessarily there. And I think that is where, you know, if we maintained a sort of consistent, coherent, high-level, active engagement and attention on these places, then that in itself would be, you know, massively influential. The final point I'd add is a structural one, which is that, you know, there is, we have to accept, a structural problem in trying to engage with this kind of Eurasian heartland at the moment, which is that at the moment, the West is sanctioning quite heavily Iran, Russia and China, which sit perfectly around the region that we're talking about. <laughs> so you're dealing with a region that's quite landlocked <laughs> and is surrounded by countries that are being very heavily sanctioned by the West. I, I just think, you know, it's a region which would benefit from engagement and where the West would discover, you know, a massive opportunity if they were sort of to stay consistent on it. Yeah, more coordinated efforts to deal with a very disparate situation. Um, Raffaello Pantucci, thank you very much for your insights um, and your time today. Um, I was talking to Raffaello Pantucci, Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, based in London. Raffaello is based in Singapore. It's late in the night. And once again, thank you for your insights and have a good night. A pleasure. Thank you, Claudia. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.